Good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those and go to John 10. If you do not know, I'm Byron Brash. I'm the pastor here. It's always a privilege to be here before you and a tremendous responsibility to preach the Word. Today we're in John 10. As you probably know, we are slowly but surely working our way through this uh, deep, rich, and theological book. And today, Jesus uh, closes his public ministry to Israel. This is his last attempt before Passion Week to present the truth one last time to the nation of Israel. But I would imagine you probably know how they're going to react to Jesus' ninth presentation in the Gospel of John to the nation of Israel. They, of course, reject him again. And the question I have is why? John 10, 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon, and the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, Jesus answered them, I told you already, and you have not believed. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If I give eternal life to them, they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them, given them to me is greater than all. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again. Notice that again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you. Many good works from the Father, for which of these are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? What does that mean? If you called them gods, to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father has sanctified and has sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said to you, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do the works of my Father, though you do not believe in me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And Jesus went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man is true. And many believed in in him there. Amen. Father, uh, we know that you are a God that has endless loving kindness and mercy and grace towards your sheep and towards your people. Lord, I just, uh, Lord, I just pray that your word would go beyond uh, stuffing our minds with more knowledge, but that your word would transform our lives and our hearts. That the Spirit of God, through your word, would change us forever. Lord, that we would walk out of the building different, not because of something I said, but because of your word and your spirit speaking into the lives of our saints that are in this room and watching online. May you be glorified. May you be honored. May your word be proclaimed. And I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. I heard a story in seminary, and I wish to share it with you here this morning. 
There once was a man who lived in a two-story house. The house was near a river, and unfortunately, the river began to flood. As the river rose, warnings were given via radio and television. Large trucks drove through the area to evacuate the people. As a truck drove by the man's house, he was told, Sir, you are in danger. Your life is at stake. You must evacuate. Get in the truck. Let us help you get out. No, the man replied from his doorstep. I have faith. I will be okay. The flood won't get me. God will take care of me. The flood waters continued to rise. Soon the man was on the second floor. A boat was going through the area and arrived at the man's house. Rescuers made every attempt to convince the man to take action so that his life would be spared. The rescuers yelled to the man, You are in danger, sir. Your life is at stake. You will drown in the flood. No worries, said the man. I have faith. Everything is okay. Even though the flood is rising, God will take care of me. The flood continued to rise. Now the man found himself on the roof to avoid the rising water. A helicopter pilot sees him on the roof and hovers above the man. Using a megaphone, the pilot begs the man to grab the rope which is dangling above his head. The pilot said, You are in danger. The flood is still rising. You will drown if you do not grab the rope. Let us help you. No worries, says the man. I will be fine. Yes, the flood is higher, but I have faith God will take care of me. The flood rises, the man drowns. At the pearly gates, the man says to God, I had faith, you let me die. To which God replied, dude, I don't know if God says dude, but there you go. Dude, I sent you a truck, a boat, and a helicopter. What more could I have done for you? That story epitomizes the Christian life. Many of, us, since many of us are sincere, trying to follow God, but deep down there is something holding us back. There's something keeping us from following God fully. There's an obstacle to our growth. I propose to you this morning the same reason why the man rejected the truck, the boat, and the helicopter is the same reason why the Jews continually reject Jesus as Messiah and is the same reason why Christians today remain spiritually immature. What is the reason? What are the root causes of one's rejection of Jesus? That is the question this morning. So with this in mind, if you have your Bible, turn to John 10. And today we finish out the chapter, and today we finish Jesus' public ministry, and in Jesus' final public address, they of course reject him again. And as I've mentioned already, in fact, this is the ninth time in the Gospel of John that they reject Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. But the question I have this morning is why? Why do they continually reject Jesus as their Christ or Messiah? In the midst of their rejection, we will see the atmosphere for their rejection in verses 22 through 23. We see the accusation for their rejection in verses 24 through 30. And we see the action, or we would also say the assault of, of their rejection in verses 31 through 42. 
Notice the atmosphere of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah in verses 22 through 23. We're going to unpack the culture really to set up the context of where we are in John 10. Verse 22 says this, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. I want you to notice with me the atmosphere, and I want you to notice two different observations on these two verses. Observation number one, what does it say? It says, at that time was the Feast of Dedication. Now, what's the question rolling around in your mind? What's the Feast of Dedication, right? I mean, that's the question that I asked myself this week. Now, to kind of paint a picture for you, John, as you probably have discovered by now, John is very unique among the Gospels for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons why is because he keeps repeating himself over and over and over again. But, okay, he's not a preacher's friend, as I've said before. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. That word synoptic comes from two Latin words smushed together. The word sin, S-Y-N, means with or together, and the word optics means to see. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they see the ministry of Jesus Christ basically from from a similar angle. But John's gospel is very unique. One of the things that makes it unique is not only he repeats himself, and John has one purpose that is explicitly stated in John chapter 20, verse 31. And if you have not highlighted that verse, please do so. But one of the things that also makes John the gospel unique is this highlight of the Jewish feasts. Uh, in fact, the reason we know Jesus' ministry was three years is because of John's reference to the Feast of Passover. And as I've mentioned before, at the beginning of John 7, culturally speaking, there are three main feasts in the Jewish calendar. And these three main feasts require a uh, pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. The first feast of the year is the Feast of Passover, which comes in early April. What does the Feast of Passover remember? It remembers their exodus, essentially, out of the nation of Egypt. And to kind of put it all together for you, what happens soon at the Feast of Passover? Jesus dies, which is why we remember Easter in the beginning of April, because that is when the Feast of Passover normally took place. The second feast of the annual, fe- uh, the annual feast of the Jewish nation is the Feast of Pentecost. This feast typically happened in late May. It's also known as the Feast of Weeks. This feast celebrated the first fruits of the harvest, but also the revelation of the Torah. The third feast of the annual calendar of the Jews is the Feast of Booths. That is introduced in John 7, so I won't... We talked about the Feast of Booths in John 7, John 8, John 9, and John 10. So I won't recap all of what that feast uh, resembles. But when we come to John 10, verse 22, as I've mentioned before, this is the next temporal marker in the Gospel of John. So John 7, 8, 9, and the first half of 10 all happen within a matter of a handful of days, maybe a couple of weeks. Then John turns the page. He turns the page by mentioning that the Feast of Dedication is upon them. Now, what is the question? What is the Feast of Dedication? 
The Feast of Dedication that John mentions in John 10, verse 22, is also known as the Feast of Lights. It remembers the recapturing of the temple under the leadership of the Maccabees. Now, uh, some of you are probably asking me who or what are the Maccabees, right? Now, in your Bible, there is a gap. In your Bible, there is a gap between Malachi and Matthew. That there is a time gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bible itself. And we traditionally call this the 400 years of silence. Now what's amazing about Malachi to Matthew is that we fail to really understand the importance of these 400 years. Because in these 400 years really sets up the New Testament world. Because things are very different when we go to Matthew as opposed to Malachi. But what's also amazing about the 400 years of silence is that God does not speak to the nation of Israel in special revelation at all. That even the writings of the Jews, they do not hold the Apocrypha, which is the writings that happen between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they do not hold the Apocrypha in high regard as the Old Testament itself. But something happened in the 400 years of silence that forever shaped the nation of Israel. In the 400 years of silence is when Alexander the Great happened, is when the Roman Empire began, but there's something that's even more fundamental that rocked the nation of Israel. 165 years before the birth of Jesus, a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Israel. And to spite the nation of Israel, Antiochus Epiphanes, this heathen Syrian king, what does he do? He walks into the temple at Jerusalem and sacrifices a pig on the altar, desecrating the temple itself with this unclean animal. This is happening in 165 B.C. The end of Malachi happened about 400 B.C. And Jesus is born around 0 B.C. So 165, Antiochus Epiphanes conquers the nation of Israel and sacrifices this pig. And in reaction to the, this cruel emperor, a Jew named Jewish, Judas Maccabees led the nation of Israel in revolt, recapturing the temple, rededicating it to the Lord, and freeing the nation of Israel from Syrian oppression. The Feast of Dedication that John mentions in John 10.22 remembers these events that happens in 165 B.C. The Feast of Dedication is also known as Hanukkah. If you know where Hanukkah is celebrated, it happens in December. And notice the second observation in John 10, verse 22. It says it was at that time the Feast of Dedication. And then notice it says it was winter. Observation number two, it says that it was winter. Now obviously, if you're familiar with Hanukkah, you know that Hanukkah is celebrated in December. And it remembers Antiochus Epiphanes and the Judas, Judas Maccabee Rebellion, freeing the nation of Israel from Syrian oppression. But if you notice, if you know it happens in December, but perhaps this reference, these three words, it was winter, does more than just tell you the season of the year. Perhaps it describes the condition of the nation of Israel. 
based upon John's use of metaphors such as light and water and life, it is not beyond uh, the exegetical uh, realm possibility that John is meaning it was winter for both the season of the year, but also the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. Because what has happened to this point? That their king, their Messiah, the Christ, this man named Jesus who has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy has proven himself to be their Lord, to be the Savior of the world and of the Jewish nation. They have continually rejected him for three years. John, most likely, is also meaning it was winter to describe the spiritual condition of the nation. We see the atmosphere for their rejection, a feast of dedication, it was winter. But then notice the accusation of their rejection in verse 24. Ah, oh, man, this makes me want to scream. Verse 24. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Man, Jesus answered them very patiently. I told you already and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What is their accusation in verse 24? How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Their accusation is twofold. That number one, he isn't the Christ. And really, you can say number two, that he hasn't proven it yet. I mean, I'm confused. Amen? I mean, it's it's mind-boggling to me that they could, for the ninth time, reject Jesus as their Savior and as their Christ. And Jesus, I've mentioned this before, Jesus does not respond in the way that I would. After the second time of them refusing me, despite all the proof, I would just start, bing, 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 they'd be just evaporating before me. I'd just start zapping people. But Jesus doesn't respond in an impatient way. He responds in Four ways, and three of them are here in verse 25 through 30. Jesus responds to them by reminding them of his words. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, I told you, and you do not believe. Jesus responds to their accusation by reminding them, number two, of his works. Verse 25b, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And number three, by reminding them of who he is. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, how many of you recognize everything that's happened so far, okay, in this passage? There's nothing new. It, it really theological in this passage. Jesus' message has not really changed. The evidence is clear that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. If that has gotten old to you, I'm sorry. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. I mean, I'll be honest. Um, I, I just was in my study this week, and I just saw... John 10, verse 22 through 42, and I just marveled at their ignorance, at their stubbornness, 
I'm sitting there to myself, how in the world can these people, they have no criminal charge against Jesus that is valid, how could they be so dense? And then a finger out of sky pointed right at me. And pointed at every single Christian that has ever lived. Every single person that has ever lived. Why can't they see that Jesus is the Christ? What are the two root causes of their rejection of Jesus? There are two reasons. Reason number one is found in verse 26 to 29. Notice those again. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. What is it talking about? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why do they reject Jesus as the Christ? Number one, because they are not his sheep. What I see here is the sovereignty of God. Can I just say it? Plainly, and I know I'm going to probably step on your toes, and I'm going to get probably a question or two in the hallway. But I see that when Jesus says, you're not my sheep, I see the issue of predestination and God's sovereignty. Why do they not believe? It's because they are not Jesus' sheep. That's what he says. His sheep hear his voice. The reason they do not believe is because of predestination. They are not his sheep. What else is the root cause? They're not just that working at play. But then the second reason they reject Jesus is because they are stubborn. They have themselves free will. They have, in the first century, the Jewish nation have the ability to look at the evidence themselves and to choose. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that they may have life in His name. Both exist here. And both exist in reality. I get asked, as a pastor all the time, I mean, I mean, it's almost on a weekly basis, which one is it? Is it predestination or free will? It's both. <laughs> it's predestination and free will. Now you're saying to me that that's a paradox and it makes no sense, and you are right. It makes absolutely no sense that God is sovereign and also we have the ability to choose. But what I see here in John 10 is not just the sovereignty of God. I see that, but it's kind of a lesser theme in my opinion. What I really see here is their stubbornness. Their continual desire to reject despite all of the evidence. They are stubborn. But let's go a little bit deeper into the culture and into spiritual life. The real reason for their stubbornness is their invisible contract. They have this invisible contract with God. That their Messiah must, yes, 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 must, must fulfill Old Testament prophecies. But in reality on the other side of the contract, that this Messiah must free them from Roman oppression. Where do I get that? Well, 
Partly because of the 40 years of silence, but also partly because of what happens today on Palm Sunday. What happens on Palm Sunday? A week before Jesus is resurrected, what happens? On this day, Jesus goes on a colt of a donkey, goes down the Mount of Olives, across the Kinder Valley, into the gate, and what does he find? He finds people with palm leaves, and what are they saying? Hosanna. What do they think he is? What we fail often to see is that Jesus at that exact moment is fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9. He is proclaiming himself to be their king, to be their savior, to be their Messiah. And then Jesus goes to the Temple Mount. And what the Jewish nation is hoping at that exact moment is that they are hoping that Jesus raises up an army and overthrows the Roman Empire and kicks them out of town. And when Jesus doesn't do that, what do they do in response? Therefore, they crucify him. They put nails in his hands, they strip him naked, they hang him on a tree for the world to see because they have a contract. Their Savior must do what they expect in order for them to trust and believe. Stubbornness is the antagonist of faith. Let me say that again. Stubbornness... Resisting the will of God, having this invisible contract that God, you gotta, you gotta do this right here. You gotta do this if I do this. Stubbornness is the antagonist of faith. Can I just uh, poke for just a second? You and I, you have a skewed view of God. We think that deep down, we really think sometimes that God is here to serve us. But really, we are here to serve Him. We have, uh, we have this picture of what God should be. That God, if I follow you, you know, you know, Lord, here's, here's the bargain of my life, right? You know, we don't really say this. Let's just be real. We don't go to God and say, okay, I have this contract. you got to do this if I do this. We don't have that. But deep down, we have those kind of expectations. Let's just be, let's just tell it like it is. Let's just see it for what it is. That we have this uh, idea that if God, I do this, therefore you have to do this. And when God doesn't fulfill his side of the bargain, therefore we want to walk away. Let me just ask you the question. If you don't believe that there's a visible contract, what is that one thing if God took away from you that you would walk away from the Lord? If you put anything on that side of the contract, that means you have one. And let me just be real. We all have one. I've seen the contract side of life that, good Lord, if I follow you, if I'm a good Bible-believing Christian and I go to church and i in a Bible study and I memorize scripture and I'm a good person and I try really hard and I raise my kids in, in, the, in the way in which they should go, I've seen this so many times with so many people, especially with our children. Think about this. How many times have you ever known a parent that, that does their best to raise their kid and to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord and then when their kid goes this way, what do they say to the Lord? I did, what did I do wrong? Where are you? Stubbornness is the antagonist of faith. Just like the man on the roof. We oftentimes can act spiritual, 
But we can be clueless at times to see God's answers to our prayers. And Jesus is the answer to the prayers of the Jews for 2,000 years. They have been waiting for the Messiah since the Garden of Eden. Over and over again, they see prophecies in the Old Testament, and they have been starving for Him. But, in their eyes, He is not holding up His end of the bargain. But He has! And they fail to see it because of man-made expectations. We see the atmosphere for their ninth rejection in verse 22 through 23. We see their accusation. And then notice their assault, or we would say also action. Verse 31. I want you to notice the sarcasm here as I read verse 31 through 33. The Jews picked up stones again. Notice that. You know, it's not the first time. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from my father. From which of these are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Where's the sarcasm? You know, people ask me if God has a sense of humor. And one question I say, well, where do you think we got it from, number one? But number two, I see the sense of sarcasm here. The Jews pick up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, from which of these are you stoning me? Right? I think he's going a little bit of... They attempt to stone him for blasphemy, obviously, but then notice Jesus' response to their assault, verse 34. This is where it gets a little confusing. Jesus answered them, Has it not not been written in your law, I said you are gods? Hmm. If you call them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? But I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him and elude their grasp. If you have your notes, how does Jesus respond to their accusation? By reminding them of his words, his works, of who he is, and of the word. Jesus uses the word of God here to refute their accusation and to refute their assault. There is a Bible reference here, if you have noticed it in verse 34. Notice it in verse 34 again. It's really, it's really confusing, even to preachers, believe it or not. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you were God's? Okay, what does that mean? This week, uh, it was in staff meeting on Tuesday, and one of my staff members said, you know, Byron, you know, what does that mean? All right. So I, I had not studied that particular phrase. I'd seen it, and I just said, you know, I don't know. But that doesn't work on Sunday morning, okay? So I've got to have those answers, right? So, but, so the key to good exegesis is what? Is asking good questions. So the first question I have when I read that verse in verse 34 is, what does that mean? I said you were God's. But then the second question is I have is, why are those words in all capital letters? What does that tell you? It tells you that it is an Old Testament verse in quotation. Jesus is pulling this from Psalm 82, verse 6. And when you look up Psalm 82, verse 6, then the meaning of John 10, 34 comes into perspective. In John 10, 34, I'll read this answer twice because it's a little bit confusing. In John 10, 34, Jesus uses the word and he uses logic, and this is the logic. 
Jesus is saying this. If the Bible says that imperfect human beings can be lowercase gods, then is it so crazy that the perfect human is the uppercase God? Let me say that again. If the Bible says that imperfect humans can be lowercase gods, then is it so crazy that the perfect human is the uppercase God? Here, Jesus uses the word to remind them of the truth, to push past their stubbornness, to confirm through his words, works of his identity, him and the Father are one essence there in verse 30, and that he uses the word. But then notice that all is not lost. The sum of the Jews are God's sheep. Verse 40. And Jesus went away again beyond the Jordan, to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there, many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed him in there. What is the root cause? What are the root causes for their rejection and their final accusation and assault? They reject Jesus out of stubbornness, despite the proof that he is the Messiah, the proof found in his words, his works, and who he is, and in his word. But what's my message to you? That's the question. The question I have this morning is, is the exegetical proposition. Is what does the passage say itself is what I just shared with you all. But what is my message to you all? You know, when I was just unpacking this text this week, and as I was just pouring over it, the Lord just gave me this theme of stubbornness. That here the nation, we, we marvel at the thought that the nation of Israel can be so dense, as my sister would say as a kid. Okay. Could they be so dense? Could they be so stubborn? But then the Lord, as I said earlier, just kind of turned the tables. He and he just points eight fingers out of heaven to this guy and to every Christian around the world. We often are like the man on the roof. We are wanting answers for our prayers, but we are so stubborn to think and to see the answers that God has given us. So this is what I want to do this morning. I, I, I just want to unfold for us three areas of stubbornness that we as Christians have. Area number one is we have stubbornness toward God. We have, as I mentioned, this invisible contract with God that if I do this, therefore, Lord, you are entitled to do what I want you to do. And in our eyes, God is able or obligated to give us health, wealth, happiness, fulfillment, success, a happy marriage, great kids, a great hair and a great life. But we cannot measure a great life by earthly standards. That is a recipe for dissatisfaction. But let us see life through the lens of God. What we are here put on this earth to do. If part of your contract is, Lord, I do this and you give me health, wealth, and happiness, let me just be real. Um, Some of the Bible characters suffered Tremendously. Okay, <laughs> I'm not saying that you will suffer in the same way, 
But God is not obligated somehow to fulfill our every wish like a magic genie. And we take this and we have stubbornness toward the Lord. We, we, we just do. Just realize it. So we have stubbornness towards God. That God, you do this, and I will do this. But then we also have stubbornness towards others. Oh. We like to overlook the commandments of Scripture to love our neighbor as ourselves. Or to sacrifice ourselves for our wives. And we stubbornly resist others. Married men in the room. Are we bitter and resentful towards our wives? Women in the room. Are we stubborn towards our husbands? Are we constantly tearing down their masculinity? Brothers and sisters in Christ. You all. Do we come to church for other people? Do we come here to worship God? Are we coming to check a box? Are we coming for ourselves? We have stubbornness towards God. We have stubbornness towards others. And then area number three is stubbornness towards ourselves. Stubbornness towards yourself. This is the legalist's trap. If you struggle with anxiety of rules, being feeling good enough, to come before the throne of grace, then you probably are struggling with a sense of stubbornness towards yourself. You're struggling to accept who you are in Christ, your identity in Christ Jesus, that through the blood of Christ, your soul has been purchased, you are recreated, and you have been, your value has been reestablished. If you keep beating yourself up over mistakes of the past that have been long forgiven, then you are probably not relishing in who you are in Christ, that you are a new creation, that you are a child of God. If you struggle with legalism, if you struggle with shame of your sin in the past, then I would encourage you to come for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to kind of take a time out from the Gospel of John on Easter and then the week after, and maybe the week after, depending on when Bradshaw baby number four comes, okay? Uh, that is, the bun is in the oven and egg timer is going to go off soon, okay? Um, but if you struggle with your identity, then I would encourage you to come for those three weeks. But before I close, I do this every week. You know, you and I are sinners. Can I get an Amen. What does that mean? I mean, you and I make mistakes. We are imperfect. We lie, cheat, and steal. But because of that, our perfect Savior came down out of heaven, took on the form of flesh, lived a perfect life to die in my stead. And that He, in turn, gives me eternal life. I, I don't know if I understand that. Because here is Jesus that it cost Him His life. And then in turn, he says, I love you so much, every single human being that is on, I love you so much that I'm going to give it to you in return for free. Just believe in me as your Savior, and I will grant to you eternal life and abundant life. If you have never trusted Christ Jesus, then he has given to you the gift of eternal life free of charge. You don't earn it. You can't. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, uh, Lord, I, I feel very inadequate. Um, because here is this.
passage of scripture that we've seen in some sense over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. As a friend told me this morning, it seems like the Gospel of John just repeats himself all the time. And I said, you are correct. And Lord, but also I see just the stubbornness of the nation of Israel. And then Lord, as you impressed upon the stubbornness of my heart, Lord, that there are things in my life that I need to work on, that I just put before you, that I'm, and that I'm so uh, tense to let go of, to justify myself, to justify my behavior or the, my viewpoint of others. Lord, I pray that we would relinquish that stubbornness, we would relinquish that control and hand it to you, because, Lord, I know that you will take it to the deepest part of the ocean and you would drop it there, never to be returned. Lord, I just thank you for my friends. I thank you for those that are tuning in online. I thank you for your word and how it is a two-edged sword, how it changes and shapes our lives. And I pray that we would let it shape our lives, that we would not just look at the scripture as something to learn and to know, but it would be something through your spirit to change and shape our lives. Lord, I pray in this time, if there's somebody that does not know you, that they would come forward and they would see me or see me in the hallway. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for my church. I love my church family. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.